Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Now, if you've ever wondered if you have the creativity or imagination to be a writer, I think today's guest will be able to encourage you. I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. Bella Mahaya Carter is a creative writing teacher, empowerment coach, speaker, and the author of an award-winning memoir, Raw, My Journey from Anxiety to Joy as well as a collection of narrative poems. She has worked with hundreds of writers since 2008 and has degrees in literature, film, and spiritual psychology. She has a new book out called Where Do You Hang Your Hammock, which we'll be talking about, as well as a number of other books that she, she has written over the years. So welcome, Bella, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here. Well, in your, newest, in your newest book, Where Do You Hang Your Hammock, you talk about finding peace of mind as we write, publish, and promote our books. I think I could have used this book over the last 20 years of my life because it is a journey for sure, doing, doing this, this work, this job. Why? What led you to actually write um, this book at this time? Did you sort of notice the people you're coaching really needed a bit of encouragement? That's a great question. Um, yeah, the answer to that question, the simple answer is yes. And, and then the larger answer is we all need encouragement. Mm. I needed encouragement. If I had read this book when I, you know, 30 years ago and, and had understood what was in the book, I would have had a pretty different life. Hmm. Now, I know there are no shortcuts. And I know that the way that we learn is, is by going through some tough stuff. I mean, look, when, when life is swimming along beautifully, that's not really when we grow the most, right? We're happy to just sort of stay where we are in the beautiful flow. But when life gets hard, and for writers, life is often hard at every stage of the process from the creative process of, you know, well, I think of it actually all as a creative process. The writing yeah. is a creative process. I think publishing is a creative process. Promoting is a creative process. It's all creative. We are creative beings. So I think that, uh, yes, yes to your question, and, and we all need that. We all need support. We all need to, to have the freedom to feel into our creativity and to know that creativity is, is something that is just given to us. And the thing that keeps us from our creativity, oftentimes, especially with writers who have great imaginations, is, is our thinking. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I've spoken to a lot of writers over the years, both on the podcast and just in person and different uh, conferences that I've spoken at and so on. And you'd be amazed how many truly successful authors struggle with self-doubt. I mean, New York Times bestselling authors and others who say, man, I struggle with self-doubt. And I look at them and I say, you've sold 100 million books or, or 500 million books or whatever it is that you've sold. And, and you would actually say you struggle with self-doubt. And I say, yeah, every time I sit down to write a book, I never know if I'll finish it. And I'm thinking, 
you've written 70 books. How could you not know you're going to finish it? But but it's true for all of us, I think. We do very often struggle with, um, with these thoughts and, and so on. So as you work with uh, authors and, and other creative individuals, how do you encourage them to get over these uh, these thoughts, these kind of negative either thoughts or the doubt that we can ever move forward uh, with our stories or with our creative endeavors? Steven, I love your questions. Of course, I love your show. I watch your show and I love it. And so I'm not surprised that you would ask this question, but thank you for this question. I love it. So the first, the sort of the first thing that we talk about is thought and what thought is. Now, a lot of people are completely fused with their thinking. We're like fish in the water. Okay, fish are swimming around in the water, but they don't really know that they're in the water. And they think that the water actually is them, right? They think they're, they're, they're just, it's all just part of who they are. So what happens is we have a lot of thinking and we identify with our thinking. And we think, oh, I, like if I have a thought like, um, like I suck or I'm not good enough, then if I don't recognize that that's like a conditioned thought that probably got seated in childhood and it was important at that time to help me and, and, and that it's, it's not the truth of who I am and who I am is something much larger than that, right? Then I can say, okay, so there's this thought. I really can't control the thoughts that show up in my mind, but what I can do is I, I can control my response to that thought. Hmm. So in other words, any thought that shows up that is limiting, I can, let's say I'm not good enough or who cares what I would have to say? Why should I even bother? No one will read what I'm going to write. So then I will just like drop down into a compassionate place Hmm. and I'll say, oh, I hear you. I hear you, insecure thought. I know how you (laughs) feel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're feeling that way. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and write anyway. And eventually the thought just goes away. And I find that the more often writers can do that, the less likely, the the thought doesn't show up as often because it can't, it it doesn't have power over you. And basically, you know, when we let those thoughts, when we believe those thoughts, when we think those thoughts are who we are, we get hijacked by them. Hmm. But that happens, it can't happen when you recognize that the thought is like a mental function that is a conditioned response and that it's not your essence. It's not who you are. It's not what you're made of. You're made of something that is miraculous and huge and, and limitless. So I try to, you know, point people in the direction of their own wisdom and their own miraculous essence. So I have a friend who's a psychologist and I think it's maybe you would know better than I do, but I think it's called cognitive therapy or cognitive cognitive uh, behavioral. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, some of what he, you just said as actually mirrored in some of the things that he's taught me over the years. And that is that when we have these negative thoughts is to just, first of all, accept, okay, I'm having this thought like to be aware of it. Right. And then, like, I like how you mentioned that don't let it limit you. Like, you're, you're much bigger than your self-doubt. Well, all of us are. We have more potential. And, like, if I start being myself, I'm not good enough. No one will love my book. No one will read my book. None of those are helpful um, thoughts. And so we want to move into a new realm, a new realm of where we're like, okay, I'll try it. Maybe I'll fail. Maybe not. And I, I still remember when I started writing um, – 
articles back in 1996, actually, which is now, I can't believe 25 years ago. Like, what has happened? But I've, you know, anyway, so at the time, though, people would tell me, you'll never get published. Everyone will get, you'll get rejection letters. It's why even bother? And so I didn't. I didn't send out, uh, you know, I had ideas for stories for magazines and so on. And I was like, well, I'll never get published. No one will like it. So, cause that's what people told me. So one day, I don't remember why, but I was like, what do I have to lose? At least sending it out there. If I'm going to get rejected, I'll get rejected, but I'll might as well just send a story out there. And so I sent a story to a magazine and they bought it. They're like, we love this story. We want more from you. And so suddenly I was just like, I started writing stories for magazines and then eventually writing books. And, and over the years, some people have said to me, well, it's a long shot, you know, and like, and, and you know, this too, everything we do is a long shot. There's no guarantee that everyone's going to love your work. And some people like it and some don't and whatever, but it's like, we've probably both met many people at writers conferences and so on who say, Oh, I've got a book I want to write. And uh, you'll say, well, go ahead or something. And they'll say, well, one day, one day I'll right. write. It. Right. Yeah. When I, when I graduate college or when my kids are out of diapers or once the kids graduate from school or once I retire, then, then I'll take this idea out. Then I'll write it. But that's not what you're encouraging us to do at all. Is it? No, I love what you just shared. Great story. Um, two things that, that I'll just respond, if I can just respond to what you said. Uh, one is I, I have a chapter in my book called Universal Doubt. And what I mean when I say universal doubt is that doubt is universal. We all experience it. The problem is we take it personally and we think that it's about us, which is the same thing that happens with writers when they send work out and they get the work rejected, which this happened to me for years. I got so much stuff rejected and I thought, I'm no good. I'm no good. I'm not good enough. And that was the misunderstanding because the truth is I had to write. I had to write, you know, it was what brought meaning to my life. So a life without meaning is not a life worth living. And when I think about something like, you know, taking a, a creative risk, I think of the wonderful um, coach, Martha Beck, an author, who said something like, let's see if I can paraphrase her. She said something like, no, she said, when you're taking a creative risk or any risk for that matter, don't look at your chances of success, but rather the depth of your desire. Hmm. She says, no risk is worth taking if your desire for it isn't great, hmm. but any risk is worth taking if your desire is true and authentic and deep enough. I like how you said, you know, that you had to write, like you felt compelled that you had these stories or this wisdom, whatever it is that you felt you needed to, to share, to write, to get out of your heart and out of your mind and so on. It reminded me of Emily Dickinson, uh, Emily Dickinson, the poet. Yeah. 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 She actually only published seven poems in her lifetime and every one of them was altered by an editor. So she had a book of poetry that um, she had written and it got rejected from somewhere and she didn't send it back in and so on. They said, this isn't good enough or whatever. And I think of that and you think, well, she was clearly a, a poet, like a great poet, you know, and a very famous poet and so on. And um, but only seven of her poems were ever 
published. So was she a success? That's the question. Like, you know, maybe not in her lifetime, she wasn't a successful poet, but she brought uh, many, uh, you know, hours and hours of joy to many, many people over the years because of what, you know, she wrote, even though maybe she didn't see that, you know, in the end. So I agree with you that sometimes within us, there are stories, poems, chapters of whatever. And I feel like it's part of my calling to share them. I don't know how many people will love it or if they'll get rejected or not, but it's, it's a big part of, of who I am and overcoming that initial doubt to say, look, I don't know what the end result will be, but I do know what I'm responsible for. And that is telling the story. Absolutely. I wanted to just share with you this quote that somebody shared during my launch last week, last Thursday was my book launch for this book. And it's that great, it's that well-known Emerson quote, which is to laugh often and love much, to win the respect of persons and the affection, the affection of children, to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. So I think that we need to open up our minds and you know, our success, like what we achieve in the world is not a marker of our success. We tend to fuse our worth and our value with what we achieve hmm. but but we're all the same you know i'm not better than anyone and i'm not less than anyone and that is a lesson that took me a long long time to understand because i was so insecure and sometimes you know the flip side of that is arrogance and i mentioned that recently to a friend and she said well i, I never experienced you as arrogant but but maybe it showed up as as being unkind or um you know, being a snob or I don't know, these things, you know, all of these behaviors that show up that are undesirable, you know, if you sort of trace them back, they come from a place of insecurity, fear. And again, it's all a misunderstanding. Years ago, I wrote a book and I still remember this paragraph. I was writing about success and it seems like this is appropriate and what we're talking about, what is a truly successful life. But, but basically the paragraph said in North America, most people work in a job they don't like, with a boss they don't respect, with people they don't get along with, in order to earn more and more money to buy stuff they don't even they don't need. need. And if they do it long enough, you know what we call them? A success. What could be further from the truth? And so, so many of us, we get off track from um, our true purpose, our true heart's desire, and so on we get caught up in the rat race and whatever it is. And so I think one of the goals of your book is really to help people step back for a second and say, okay, look, I've got these stories or poems, whatever it is within me, this creative nature, and I want to find express expression for it. Who cares if it's quote successful, right? I mean, right. of course we want people to read and we want to sell our books and so on, but, but um, I think there's a, different sort of perspective on success that can come through as you pursue that aspect of uh, your genuine self. I love that, Steve. And I feel like I could talk to you forever. I don't ever want, I don't ever want to stop because this is so much fun, but I will say this in response to what you said. The irony is that I, I feel like once I understood that I could let go, that was the point at which people started perceiving me as successful and, you know, I remember there was a really tough time in my life when I was dealing with some difficult stuff. And I had this dream that I was driving my car on the freeway. I live in Los Angeles and I was turning into a, a steep curve to get off the freeway. And suddenly the steering wheel came off 
and I was holding the steering wheel in my <laughs> hands. And I was, and then my first thought was, oh shit, I'm going to crash. <laughs> and, and then I was astonished to realize that my car was driving itself. And I woke up understanding that, you know what, I'm not in control. Hmm. And there is something larger driving the vehicle that is my life. And I need to let go and let that happen and trust that process. So tell us a little bit more about this process, the creative process. Like, how do we get out of our own way or how do we step out of the way that we might be in ourselves? I don't know if that makes sense to actually start to uncover more of these creative aspects of, of who we are. What are some of the keys that you actually share in your book, but also when you coach writers as far as moving out of the way to let that creative self have more freedom? Yeah, I talk a lot about this in the book. So I think one of the one of the first, first, first of all, there are no rules. It's all about cultivating a relationship with both the difficult thinking that you may have, but also with your creativity and just becoming uh, a receptive vessel to receive what is wanting to be expressed through you. And so that involves just getting out of your own way. And one of the things that you can do is just give yourself permission. Give yourself permission to be who you are, to be where you are, and allow anything and everything to come out on the page. I happen to love keeping a journal and I, you know, I have hundreds of journals, you know, going back 40 years. And I just I never know. I don't even often know what I'm thinking until I sit down and write in my journal. And there it is. So uh, the journal is, I think, a fantastic tool. I, I tell people all the time, it keeps me honest. It keeps me grounded. Uh, there are no expectations. There's no judgment. It's just me on the page, messy, spilling it out. And that is a great tool for, for writers. I recently was interviewed by a very successful author who is in a bit of a writing slump right now. And he, 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 you know, said, well, I, you know, I don't write in journals. You know, I, I don't believe in journals. I tried to do it and it didn't work. And, and I didn't say anything about it because of course it was an interview, you know, but my thinking was, uh, you know, maybe you have a thought about what it's supposed to look like. Maybe you think it's supposed to like, you're supposed to write every day. But, but really, like maybe if you write once, you know, every three weeks or whenever the spirit moves you or whatever, like what if there's no, what if there's like, it's really fluid and flexible because that's really what life is. Nothing in life is, is rigid. I mean, we create rigidity and rules, which is really, I, I should tell you the hammock story so that you can have a <laughs> frame of reference. So, so the hammock, this is why my book is called, Where Do You Hang Your Hammock? 10 years ago, my husband and my daughter got me this great gift for Mother's Day. It was a hammock. And I loved it, but I thought, well, I don't know where to put it. Where should we put it? You know, I can't put it here in the backyard because of this reason and that reason. So finally, what we we went to the side of the house and we had this old tool shed and, and we decided that we could clear the shed. We could knock it down and we could put the hammock there. It was lots of shady. It was just beautiful. So we set up the hammock and wow, it was the perfect spot for the hammock. It's great. I loved it. I used it for years. Then one day I go out to my hammock and something is not right. I look up and I see that the, the, the tree, the, the tree was, that was providing the shade for my hammock, my neighbor had cut it down without even asking, ah. right? The tree, the tree was on his side of the law of the property of the fence, but there was a hole in the fence through which the limb extended and provided this beautiful canopy of shade <laughs> for me, right? 
So at first I was like, okay, let me try to work with this. I like, I put on sunscreen. I covered myself with a white sheet, nothing. I was broiling in that hammock. It was not fun. And I was pissed. And I thought like, I got really upset. And I thought this is my neighbor's fault. And I was angry. And, and my husband, God bless him. He's the sweetest guy in the world. He kept coming up with great suggestions. Like, well, we can get a plant, right? That'll grow. And um, and, I, and I shot it, shot down. No, it'll take too long for the plant to grow. Oh, we'll get a, sh- a shade cover. I'm like, I don't want to look at plastic. I want to look at the sky. I'm not, you know, <laughs> and he had all these great suggestions and I kept knocking them down. And for two months, I avoided my hammock. And that was that. I was just, I was, I was digging my heels into my position. I was pissed. I was pissed and the world was screwed and I was screwed and it was a mess. Then one day at the end of the summer, I just really, really needed to go into my hammock. I was desperate for my hammock. And I said, well, screw it. I'm going to, I tore down this old redwood trellis and I dragged the hammock to a shady location, you know, just like, you know, a few feet away to the shade. I sunk into my hammock. I looked up at the sky and I said, whoa, this is beautiful. Why didn't I do this sooner? (laughs) Now I, this is a little aside. I have since moved my hammock I now I move my hammock all the time and I have discovered that there is not a bad place in my yard for my hammock but the point of the story is I had this fixed idea about how it was supposed to look and when I went to publish my memoir and things weren't unfolding as I expected them to I I realized that well maybe it's time to move my hammock Maybe I have this fixed idea of what it's supposed to look like to publish my book, and maybe there's other ways I can do this. And so in the book, I have, I have these what I call move your hammock moments. So that's M-Y, move your hammock. So that's M-Y-H-M, which I also think of as my hmm moments. <laughs> well, no, that's good. Uh, when you were telling that uh, story, it actually made me think of Years ago, I was in Denver and um, I was speaking at a conference anyway at the hotel. I was walking down the hallway and noticed that the exit sign to the stairwell was not above the door, but down by the base of the door. So Mm. it was uh, right near the floor. And I thought, that's ridiculous. Like, why would you stick an exit sign down by the base of the door? The only reason someone would ever need to see one down there is if they were like crawling on the ground. And I thought, (laughs) oh, well, yeah, if there was a fire and you were trying to get out of the building, of course, you would be crawling along the ground because there would be smoke and you would never see the exit sign above the door. You'd never know which door was which to get out of in a hotel. They all look the same. And so some clever sign hanger guy had said, probably, let's imagine that I'm leaving this hotel. I'm trying to get out in a fire. What would I do? I'd be crawling. All of a sudden he says, I could never see that. So I'm going to stick the exit sign down here by the base of the door. And so what I took away from that was that creativity is not necessarily seeing what no one else would see, but seeing what anyone else would see if only they were looking from that perspective. And I like Mm. the idea of sometimes in our lives, just you need to get on the floor and crawl to see things from a new perspective. And I think that's part of what you were getting at is sometimes, you know, there's beauty all around us. Sometimes our eyes are closed to it and we don't see it. And seeing from a new perspective, fresh perspective can sometimes really open up those creative, uh, let those creative juices flow, I guess. Absolutely. And the truth is, you know, 
going back to we can't control what thoughts show up. We can't control the circumstances oftentimes that show up. Mm. Like I couldn't see, you know, that was the situation, right? And But the truth was I had a choice. I mean, I could choose to be pissed off for two months and not use my hammock, which is a stupid choice, but that was the choice I made. But looking back, you know, I realized, well, you know, finally it occurred to me that I could make a different choice. And, and so when I work with writers from, you know, at every level, from inspiration to publication, all the way through to promotion and beyond, you know, it's all about, well, this is the situation. So how do you want to respond to it? How can you be generous with yourself? How can you show some compassion? How can you live in the moment? And really just access your the create the creativity that you have because we all are creative. We all are creative. And the only thing that uh, interferes with our creativity most of the time, I mean, yes, there are there are always external circumstances, right? I mean, like read Rick, you know, Victor Frankel's book, you know, Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, you know, being in, you know, in the concentration camp during World War II, you know, was horrific. And yet this man had a way of um thinking that enabled him to survive. Would you say that um, perfectionism is a hindrance to excellence or a pathway to it? My first response to that question is that it is a hindrance to it. I think I am a recovering perfectionist. I will admit that. And I do have an appreciation for the desire to, for excellence but excellence is different than perfection. Excellence is, uh, it's like the prayer, you know, make me the best that I can be, you know, show up in the world, be of service, do your best. That's excellence. But perfection is really trying to achieve something that doesn't exist because we're not, oh, I, Elizabeth Gilbert has this great quote about perfectionism about, you know, it's just fear in fancy, in high heels and fancy clothing. <laughs> And for me, that's definitely been the case in my life. You know, the, the desire to be perfect uh, has stemmed from the feeling of I'm not good enough. So I need to be perfect to somehow make myself okay. Many years ago, I heard someone say uh, this about perfectionism. He said, if you try to do everything perfectly, you'll never get past brushing your teeth. Yeah. I was like, that's pretty interesting. I think so. But yeah. So if you try to do it perfectly, you'll be sitting there brushing your teeth for 14 hours. Well, yeah. And the idea is that if you're trying to do something perfectly, you're in an you're in an idea. You're in a thought. You're not in the moment. Hmm. You're not, and and you're not not only aren't you in the moment, but you can't receive what is, you know, the the the, the beauty, whatever the creative impulse is. You're not available. You're not a receptor. You're I like what you were saying, though. And then <laughs> for anyone listening, this has been a wonderful interview. And it is a wonderful interview. We've had some weird technical difficulties, but that's just life today in our crazy, crazy um, world. So let's move on from perfectionism for a second. And I wanted to ask you, one of your chapters mentions tips for taking care of yourself while writing painful memories. Yeah. What are one or two of the practical ideas for people regarding taking care of yourself if you're writing painful memories? 
Well, one tip is just uh, go at it in short spurts. In other words, you know, maybe you're a person who's accustomed to sitting down and writing for two hours or longer, but when you're writing painful memories, you're going to be brought back to, into those painful memories. And maybe two hours is too long. Maybe you need 20 minutes there. Give yourself a lot of leeway. Don't, don't, you know, don't make a lot of rules for yourself or even adhere to some of your old rules. So be, to, number one, be aware of the rules. And number two, be willing to be very fluid and to give yourself a break. And that, that might mean writing in shorter, shorter periods and, um, and also just having a lot of compassion, being compassionate with yourself. I think no matter what type of writing we do, there are times we'll, when we will encounter either a tough memory, difficult memory, as you mentioned, or a difficult situation, something comes to mind. And uh, sometimes, though, those can be really resonant, powerfully uh, emotional moments that people really identify with. Absolutely. I'm so glad you pointed that out because the truth is when we're being vulnerable, when we're sharing from the depths, it's a gift that we give not only ourselves, but others. And I say that it's a gift that we give ourselves because when you write about something that has been painful to bear, um, there is a, a release that happens. There is a, um, you come to a new understanding. Oftentimes I do anyway, and, I, and a lot of my students do as well. And there's like, there's oftentimes when you share it, there's a release of shame. You know, you think that, you know, this, you, you something, it's been secretive and you've been holding it in and then you share it and people say, wow, you know, they relate to it because we all have these things that we're ashamed of. And so when, when you step into that and you share something that you have always felt is shameful, then others, you know, it gives others permission to do the same. So it's really a gift when, when you do that. I remember one storyteller telling me one time that when you write about something that was difficult for you to experience, sometimes try writing it in third person. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this sounds a little weird, but like, so for instance, um, he walks into the kitchen, he's only 11 months old, but can already toddle around. He sees a cord hanging down from the counter. He doesn't know that there are two gallons of boiling grease on the other end of that cord. He's curious. He walks over and reaches out. And that's how I start the story of when I was a baby and was badly burned. But it's an interesting sort of approach where you tell the story, not as if it, it's you, but almost as if it's someone else. And you can kind of draw people in, in a way, and, and I don't know, maybe process it or something. It's just a little different technique. Maybe. Absolutely. In fact, a lot of my students, uh, especially beginners, Beginners write that way all the time because they, you know, it gives them a little bit of distance from the narrative. They don't feel like they're, you know, they, they, it just, it, it, it does, it provides distance. First person narration is the most intimate form of narration. I, sometimes some of my students will write something that way, especially in the beginning. And then, and then we'll experiment and I'll say, okay, we'll try that in the first person and see how that feels or try that in the second person or, you know, so we play around with that. That's voice is so interesting in that respect. So absolutely. That is a great strategy. If you're, if there's something really difficult that you're writing about uh, to write it in the third person, uh, but ultimately, ultimately what is the most powerful in terms of personal transformation is, and growth is when that narrator can own the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think to some of the books I've written over the years and some difficult um, 
memories and moments have come in. But very often, those are the ones, even in novels, that people have connected with the most um, intimately, right. uh, which they don't even know those are based on real experiences. Those, that one scene that you wrote about in this book, whatever. And I'm like thinking in my mind, that actually kind of is based on something that happened to me. So they can be powerful. That's, that's great. Now, you also coach people, not just in the creative process, in the writing process, but also kind of guiding them through this whole tangled world of getting published and promoting your book and so on like that. And uh, there are different pathways to publication. Some people go traditional where uh, if people are listening right now, I say, what does that even mean? Well, usually a publisher will pay you money to write a book uh, and then they will give you a percentage of every book that sells. The other way that some people today are publishing is to self-publish, or some people will say indie publishing, where you, you don't go to a publisher and they pay you money. You basically publish it yourself and then make it available through different venues online and so on. Now, there's nothing right or wrong about any approach that someone might have, but um, when you're talking to authors, what are some of the questions that you ask them to help them decide what pathway might be the most appropriate for them? I just like to say that there is a middle way hmm. and that is hybrid publishing. Yeah. And in my book, I talk about the um, criteria for hy hybrid publishers and a hybrid publisher is uh, a publishing company like She Writes Press, which is how I published this book. And She Writes Press, uh, the, the uh, publisher of She Writes Press is Brooke Warner, who used to be the acquisitions editor at Seal Press, which was a traditional press. And she became disillusioned with what she saw in terms of what she could acquire because she saw that she, could, uh, she was being getting pressured to acquire um, projects that came with authors who could sell a lot of books. So the author platform became actually more important than the writing itself. So this is someone who has... Um, worked in publishing for over 20 years and and really knows the ropes and the nice for me what's been really nice about working with a hybrid publisher is that uh th there's so so much of a learning curve when you publish i have friends who have published um self-published and i am amazed at what they have learned and what they do and it's uh it's it's complex there's a lot to the learning curve is steep uh what i've loved about working with she writes press is that i'm working with a team of professionals they have traditional distribution, which which when you self-publish, uh, you don't get. And um, and and I'm working with professional designers, and 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 uh, and I also get a much higher percent of profits, which is great. So in terms of what I talk about when people come to me and they ask, you know, about their path to publication, it always comes down to what what's important to you, what are your priorities, you know. Are you young and and have like feel like you have all the time in the world to query agents and uh, go the traditional route? You know, is that something? Because that takes time, right? And I mean, I have students and clients who spent two years, you know, just getting an agent, and then they got an agent, and then it was great, and they were excited, and then and then their agent, you know, couldn't sell their book, and then their agent wasn't returning their calls, and then it was another <laughs> agent, and then it was you know on and on and on and on, and. You know, if you're young and you have like lots of time and energy and you want to do that, great, do that. If you're 60 and you've written a book that is really important to you and you want to share it with the world, you know, maybe you're not going to want to do that because you don't have the platform for it. You don't have the time for it. You just want to get it out. 
maybe you want help, you know, you want to go with the hybrid press, maybe you you're you have publishing experience. So it really just depends on who you are and what's important to you. But no matter how you publish, I would say this, it doesn't define you. And at the end of the day, audiences don't care how the book is published. They just care that it's published well. And by well, I mean, the book better be professionally edited. Like, you know, if you want to like play in the big world of books, it better be professionally edited, you know, a developmental edit, a copy edit, proofreading, you know, multiple stages of editing. The book cover better be able to compete in the marketplace, you know, as a thumbnail. It's got to be dynamic and easy to read and, 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 and more. I mean, on and on and on. Yeah, I've found that um, when people, not always, of course, but, but there's a tendency when people say, I'll self-publish my book, that they publish it too soon. Right. Before they've maybe edited it as, as well as perhaps they could, or proofread it and so on. And it isn't that they have a bad idea or a bad story or anything like that. It's just that maybe they're, they haven't spent as much time sort of refining editing and so on. So we want everyone, no matter where they're at, hybrid or indie or traditional, whatever, to write stories of excellence. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And to present them in a way, you know, when I submitted my manuscript to She Writes Press and they, you know, we worked on the cover, we worked on the interior design and I got back my advanced reader copies. I felt like my Cinderella manuscript who had been in rags came back to me in her ball gown. Right? <laughs> there you go. So you want to give your, if you have a story to tell, you want to give it its best shot. And in, and in this world, there's millions of books published all the time. You know, you want it to be able to compete in that marketplace. So you want it to go through editorial work, design, professional editorial work, professional design work. And if you don't have the money, you know, do a, you know, go, go fund me campaign, you know, mm -hmm. there's ways to do it. So, but just pay attention to that and know that there's, there's a lot you don't know. So, you know, try to, try to collaborate with people who do know who can help you. No, that's good. Good. Collaboration is, is, is a good, way to look at it. And, uh, you know, I've met people who have done funding campaigns and so on for their books. And, and as I've said on this show before, but I'll say it again, write worthy books, yes. rage against mediocrity. And so that's what we want to elevate everyone's uh, stories that, that they have to share and to tell. And so I just wanted to say, um, Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to be with me today, Bella. I've really enjoyed the chance to talk, to pick your brain a little on emo, uh, imagination, actually creativity, writing, and all of those things that you cover in your book. And uh, so I appreciate you being on uh, the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's been so great to talk to you. I, th I think you're a wonderful storyteller. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that very much. And uh, where would be the best place for people to connect with you, maybe online, if they want to find out about your coaching services or when you might speak or how to get your book? Is there a website or social yeah. media presence? Yeah, uh, best way to reach me is www.bellamahiacarter.com. I have a I have two 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 writing circles coming up uh, in July. One of them, the Wednesday class is full, but I have room in the Thursday class if anyone wants to dig in and start excavating the depths and having some fun and being with some really um, creative and warm, loving people. 
Excellent. Now, that's great. And so the newest book is Where Do You Hang Your Hammock? So check it out wherever books are sold and give that Give that a read. It'll encourage you and it'll help you in your journey of finding peace of mind and, and uh, while you pursue your publishing dreams. Um, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. For more info about our other guests and to check out our other interviews, search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts Friday evenings. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.